knowing the truth with Pastor Kevin Bowling is a live call-in radio program providing doctrinal dialogue, cultural commentary, and insightful interviews with some of today's foremost Christian authors and leaders. Knowing the Truth is the outreach ministry of the Mountain Bridge Bible Fellowship in Traveler's Rest. The goal of the church and the radio program is to seek the glory of God in the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of the saints by the ministry of the Word. For more information, go to www.knowingthetruth.org. Here with today's edition of Knowing the Truth is Pastor Kevin Bowling. Hey, welcome to this edition of the Known the Truth radio program. This is Pastor Kevin Bowling. So glad that you joined us on the broadcast today. I hope you uh, survived the frost last night. I think we're due for another one tonight. Um, I, I know you survived, but I hope that your plants and, you know, your fruits and vegetable uh, vegetables, your fruit trees and so forth, that all of that uh, survived as well. I um, I think we came out okay. I, I went out and looked a little bit this morning, and uh, it looked like everything was still fine. Um, I had some pear trees that were in full bloom. We uh, we took advantage of those pear, pear trees last year. Just uh, had tons of pears on them. I'm still having uh, pear jelly up until this point that my wife made from all the pears that we had off of that tree. Uh, the apple trees were not as much in bloom yet. They had buds on them, but were not blooming at all. And uh, the blueberries and so forth, they were in full bloom as well. But I checked them this morning, and they seem to be okay uh, so far. So I hope one more night here we get through uh, the frost tonight. And um, if we do as well um, tonight as we did last night, then I think we'll be just fine coming through this. I have some Asian pears and some Asian persimmons that I put in that I have yet to get any fruit off of. I think I had one persimmon on it last year, but it didn't make it all the way to fruition, to picking time. So um, this year, again, I was very happy with the the growth that the tree had anyways, even though it didn't have any fruit on it. And um, so I'm looking forward to these uh, finally producing some fruit. And they were in bloom, so they seem to uh, survive. I just, I'm at the point with a lot of these plants where they're big enough now. I mean, it'd be nearly impossible for me to cover the the Bartlett pears. I mean, they're like 25 feet high or something, right? So uh, they're not going to be covered. <laughs> so, um, and the, some of the other ones, even the Asian persimmons may be 9, 10 feet high or something. Uh, not persimmons, uh, pears. And so even the... Um, the blueberry bushes are of good size now that I can't wrap them with one full, um, just one 16-foot cattle panel. You know, I like to put that around the base of the tree. It stands about four feet high, 16 feet long, and I can't get 16 feet to reach all the way to the other side. So it's a, they're getting to be sizable bushes, and the days of being able to cover these things with something I think are, are gone so uh, I was just kind of, well, we'll just see what happens. There is some some thought about throwing water on them and sprinkling them and so forth. But as I was reading about doing that, um, and this is what, you know, farmers have to do for when they have a whole orchard and so forth. You have to do that the entire time. So the, the period of time last night uh, of which there was the, the frost warning or watch was uh, from 11 o'clock in the evening till 11 o'clock this morning, so till just a couple minutes ago. So that's a long time to be spraying water on your plants. And so I have a well. I wouldn't um, just let a sprinkler. You'd have to have multiple sprinklers going too, but multiple sprinklers going that period of time, that that's not going to work in our situation. And so, yeah, I just couldn't do basically anything. I just covered one of the smaller Asian persimmons, and I just um, put a cattle panel around it, put a tarp over the top of the cattle panel, wasn't touching the uh, plant at all. And I just said, well, I'm going to try to protect that one because it was still small enough and not mature enough that it'd be strong enough to survive, you know, the cold. So we'll see what happens, and uh, Lord willing, 
tonight will be uh, just as uh, profitable as last night was and will come out of it just fine. I don't know if it's going to be the only one that we're going to have. I don't, I don't put any vegetables in the ground, any plants until after Easter. I've done that before and tried to, you know, we had some really nice days already, even up to 80 degrees. And you get all um, excited about spring coming and saying, man, I'm going to till the garden and get some plants set. Well, I've made that mistake before. <laughs> and then you got to go out there and cover everything that's in the garden and so forth. So after that happened once and I lost a lot of the stuff that I had planted, I said, not doing that again. I'm waiting until Easter. After Easter, then I'll put the um, the tomatoes and, you know, uh, peppers and all that type of stuff into the ground. There'll be plenty of time for them to grow throughout the rest of the summer and so forth. So, so I hope it worked out well for you. And um, with that, just a little bit of intro, I wanted to also say I received a letter from um, one of the listeners. I don't have his name right here in front of me, but he listens to the broadcast and he sent me a letter saying, you know, are you going to be doing a podcast after the radio version of the Knowing the Truth program goes away? And the answer to that is yes. In fact, we actually do a podcast now that all the uh, radio broadcasts are uh, loaded, uh, uploaded after the broadcast to sermonaudio.com forward slash knowing the truth. Or you can just simply type in www.knowingthetruth.org and it will redirect you right to our sermon audio page. And all of the uh, audio from the Knowing the Truth radio program is loaded right there for free download. And there's there's well over 700,000 downloads that have taken place from that web page. So we've been doing that on a regular basis from almost from the beginning of the radio broadcast. So um, that's going to be available. It probably, at least initially, will be the audio from our Sunday morning uh, service at the church that I pastor, Mountain Bridge Bible Fellowship. We're just going to take that Sunday morning service and then upload it immediately afterwards. We haven't decided whether we do the singing and then the and the service as well, the, the preaching as well, but, um, but we'll see. And then we'll upload it, and I may, may add to those um, that upload some additional uh, explanations or expounding upon uh, the sermon like I do now during the broadcast during the week. So I can add additional uploads there as well. But there's where you can go, my friend. The name may have been Alex. I'm not positive. But uh, there you go, my friend. You can get Adam right there. So we're on the radio program here until the end of the month, to the end of March. And then you won't hear the Knowing the Truth radio program on the airwaves. But again, you can listen to it at any time in the download format there on sermonaudio.com forward slash knowing the truth or just knowingthetruth.org. Well, with that, let me read the section that we looked at this past Lord's Day. We we had finished up with uh, Acts chapter 3 last week, and Acts chapter 3, you know, we looked at the idea of the greatest crime that was ever committed. Peter, after the, the lame man was healed at the gate called Beautiful, preached his second sermon and in that second sermon, man, he just laid out the case against those who had uh, arrested and convicted and crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and laid out in no uncertain terms just the gravity of their sin and their guilt of their sin, the sin of man, in the first part of that, of that method, that, that sermon that Peter preached in Acts chapter 3. In the second part of that sermon— first part deals with their rejection of Christ. The second part deals with their reception of Christ. And in that second part, Peter then balances out the gravity of guilt of man's sin on one side with the graciousness of the salvation that God has provided in Jesus Christ on the other side of that sermon. And so when thinking about that, you know, these are the people that actually physically uh, were the ones who were involved in putting Christ to death as the greatest crime that was ever committed in, in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, the great grace that is provided by God afterwards, so much so that Peter offers that to them to repent of their sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, which 5,000 of them do at the preaching of Peter. 
5,000 of them. Uh, we, well, it says in the passage, actually, in Acts chapter 4, uh, which is connected to what happened in Acts chapter 3, he says that uh, 5,000 men, the estimate is, a very conservative estimate, is that if uh, each man being married and then having one child, we would put that at about 15,000 people came to the saving knowledge of our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So a large number of people were saved in, in that passage as a result of the Holy Spirit working through the Apostle Peter and preaching that message and saving the souls of all those that were there in that area. The the uh, text that comes to my mind when I think about that gravity of guilt of man and of man's sin and the graciousness of the salvation that God provided in Jesus Christ, the verse that comes to my mind is Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, where it says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Hallelujah. Amen. That is a wonderful, wonderful thought. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And the reason that that's such a wonderful thought is not just for those who lived in the first century church there that were the recipients of the Holy Spirit's power after the preaching of Peter of that second sermon. It's because in a very real sense that Christ was upon that cross because of my sin and because of your sin, that there's a very real sense that I can't just sit back and say, yeah, those people were scoundrels. You know, they're, they're real sinners, you know, they're much worse than I am, and so forth. That's just not the case. I I would not want to uh, put my sins, a list of my sins, up against their sins and feel any sort of confidence that I would feel good about. It's like two ants uh, just, you know, arguing about who is taller than the other one. It's uh, it's insignificant uh, according to the idea that Christ came— in order to pay the price for the sins of his people. And my sin, the gravity of my sin was such that nothing short of the shed blood of Jesus Christ was adequate to pay the price for my sin. So in a very real sense, it was my sins that nailed Christ to that cross. And I can hear them in a sense. I can hear my voice among the, the, the scoffers in the crowd who were crying, out for the crucifixion of Christ and the release of Barabbas and, and these types of things. I could be there just as easy as they were physically there. In a very real sense, I would be there doing this as well. And so uh, we need to take it outside of just a historical record of what happened with some people at some point in time and put it into the, the personal um, you know, reflection upon what is taking place there and the great salvation that has been provided for my soul and your soul in the shed blood of our wonderful Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the graciousness of God in offering it to us uh, after all that we have done against him in our rebellion against him and our rejection of Christ for so many years before we came to salvation, for our overlooking of the goodness of God on a regular basis and so forth stubbornness of our heart and our pride and self-centeredness and so forth. Oh, the graciousness of God in providing salvation for us, just overwhelming. When we realize that, you know, the scripture says that they that are forgiven of much love much. It seems to be a direct correlation to our understanding and our feeling of the, of the depth of the mercy of God that was bestowed upon us because of our sins the many sins that we had committed against him, is there is a direct correlation to understanding that to the amount then that we love the Lord Jesus Christ afterwards. So I pray that we would have only a deeper sense of the of the gravity of our sins and that that would result in us offering gratitude to God in the right amount uh, because, for what he has done on our behalf. Who was it? Hezekiah. I think in the Old Testament that it said that uh, he did not render unto the Lord according to the to the in thankfulness and gratitude to God according to the good that God had done unto him. He had spared him of his disease. He had given him an extra 15 years of life, 
but he just went on in his life and he did like the nine lepers that were healed. He didn't, he didn't express the gratitude to God for the good that was done unto him. There was a, there was a disconnect. There was a, it wasn't equal. This is what God had done. This was the level of the gratitude that came afterwards and they were not equal. And so we don't want to be like that. We want to have the expression of, of gratitude to God that is appropriate, that is the proper level in correspondence to all of the good that God has done to us through Christ. Now, this past week, based upon what happened there then in Peter's second sermon in Acts chapter 3, we then turn to page here, as it were, in the scriptures and are now in Acts chapter 4. And to start the sermon this past week, I read the opening 22 verses. I wasn't going to take into consideration everything that is said there in those verses, you know, in an expository way. But I thought that, you know, when we start a new section, I'd like to read a larger amount of that because those are the verses I'm going to be commenting on over the next couple of weeks. In, in this particular sermon, I was making a beeline for verse 12 as our text, but I wanted the, the folks in the congregation to see the context both before and after the verse somewhat as well. So the, the chapter begins this way. It says this, and as they spake unto the people, that is Peter and John, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and they put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit, many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas and the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power? Or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to this impotent man, by what means he was made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which the builders, that was set at naught of the builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved." Now, when they saw the boldness of John and of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. And when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? or that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them, is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightway threaten them that they speak henceforth no, to no man in this name. And they called them, and they commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. The man was above 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing was showed. 
And so there's the opening 22 verses in this passage. And I think as we look at this passage, there's a there's a number of ways that we can uh, look at it. There's a number of texts here, of course, that would call to be preached. There's a lot of what I would refer to as capital texts in this section, you know, very uh, outstanding statements that are made that cry out in order to be preached and so forth. And so uh, I wanted to just give a little bit of a commentary to start on just a couple of things right on the surface that are mentioned here in this passage. And I think in doing that, it would help to just give a little bit of an outline of the 22 verses that I just read. In fact, the outline would uh, take into consideration all the way down to verse 31, where everything related to this story, to to the narrative here of this man being healed and the preaching that surrounded it, the opposition or persecution that resulted, and so forth. All of that uh, goes down to about 31 in the passage, and then there's a new thought in the uh, in the chapter. So I would say that the first section that we see here, of course, is the apprehension of the apostles that is spoken about in verses 1 through 4 in the passage. It tells us that this these group of people came together in order to come and apprehend the apostles. So it says the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. I was mentioning this um, on the Lord's Day, but uh, the Sadducees uh, didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife at all. And so they certainly didn't believe in the resurrection of people afterwards and in, even more specifically in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no play on their name. It would say that um, they're, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they were sad, you see. They were sad, you see, because of not believing in the resurrection. You remember what Paul said about not believing in the resurrection. And Paul said that if we believe, uh, have Christ in this life only, you know, then we would be of all men most miserable. And so they're miserable people who just have, you know, uh, only the rationalists. They only believe in what they can see and feel and experience in this life. They have no concept of the afterlife at all. They refuse to believe in it, no matter what was said and so forth. So they seem to be, what's interesting is it does seem that it, when Christ in his physical presence was here, upon the face of the earth, up until the time that he was crucified, dead, buried, raised from the dead, and so forth, and up until the ascension, it seemed that the opposition came mostly from the Pharisees. Now that Christ has been resurrected and so forth, the opposition seems to now come from the Sadducees in from throughout the book of Acts and so forth. And I think part of that is, is because so much of the preaching of the apostles revolved around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the basic message that is that is preached, that Christ came, God sent Christ to the, to the, uh, into the world in order to do for us what we're completely unwilling and unable to do for ourselves. You uh, took Christ and crucified the Christ, but God raised him from the dead, and Jesus is now alive and if you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. That's the basic outline, I think, of most of the preaching that takes place in the New Testament Scriptures. And a large part of that was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles were constantly saying, in fact, this was one of the prerequisites for being an apostle, is that you were an eyewitness to the resurrected Savior. You had seen the resurrected Savior. This is what Peter articulated in Acts chapter 1 when they were looking for a replacement for Judas, and and Matthias was chosen, and uh, one of the prerequisites there was, requirements was that he had to have been with the disciples from the beginning when Christ called them, but also that he had uh, witnessed the risen Savior was part of it. So this becomes a major message, and therefore it becomes a major obstacle Afterward, Now, I couldn't help but, in reading this section, too, you think about uh, section 2, or verse 2, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And I can't, can't believe 
here is this man in misery for 40 years of his life, uh, then obviously being what would have been called crippled during that time or, that you know, even in, up until recently, but being disabled and, uh, you know, uh, unable to use his legs at all and so forth. I mean, it would just been a miserable existence for him. He can't work, as I talked about before. He can't walk. He can't work. He can't worship. He can't go into the temple and so forth. And so just this miserable existence. And then this wonderful thing happens, this glorious thing happens to this man. And yet here are these people that are more concerned about their pride, more concerned about their position and so forth and how they looked in the eyes of the people and all of these things. And they are about this man and the wonderful things that have happened to him. It really just sets the tone for everything that is going to be said here afterwards. So the first section speaks about the apprehension of the apostles and then the examination of the apostles from 5 to 12, the consultation and prohibit, uh, the prohibition by the council in 13 through 18. And then the last section from 19 to 31 is the apostles' response and their release afterwards. So we're going to look at that second section, but let's take a quick commercial break, and then we'll look at a couple things that take place in the apprehension and the examination of the apostles, primarily in that section with taking verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We'll look at that when we come back from the break. Stay tuned. You're listening to Knowing the Truth with Pastor Kevin Bowling. For more information about today's program, the radio ministry, and the resources we offer, go to www.knowingthetruth.org. Welcome back to Knowing the Truth with Pastor Kevin Bowling. Information regarding the resources referenced on today's program can be found at www.knowingthetruth.org. Now, here to continue with today's program is Pastor Kevin Bowling. Okay, we're looking in our study at Acts chapter 4, and in Acts chapter 4, specifically in verse 12 in this passage. And let me just say that, uh, you know, there's a lot of information in these 22 verses that I read at the top of the program, and that uh, there are many different points, of course, that can be preached in this section, and, and most of them have been preached, I think, that uh, generally speaking, that when you approach this particular passage of Scripture, if you're going through a study in the book of Acts, the message that is going to be uh, typically taught at the start of Acts chapter 4 is going to be a message from the standpoint of either the opposition to the gospel or the persecution of God's people. One of those two topics, I think, are what most people gravitate towards when you open up your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 4. And those are certainly two worthy topics of looking at as we look at that passage. I think that they would certainly be at least uh, sub-points or sub-topics that are worthy of being preached uh, in a sermon and so forth to look at what's there. But in our particular study, we are doing an expository study on the entire book of Acts, and so we're looking, as we go through the study, at unifying themes in the various verses and passages that we look at. And I was talking a little bit about this on this whole concept of doing this, looking for the unifying themes in verses or passages, chapters of the Scripture, whole books of the Bible as well. And uh, the reason that I just I gravitate towards doing that, I just because of my seminary training and so forth, that is something that we did repeatedly, and we typically preached the, the, the text uh, from that vantage point, from the idea of what is the unifying theme in the verse or the passage or the chapter or uh, the book or whatever, that uh, finding that first and then moving on from there. Now, now sometimes if you have a single verse, it's a lot easier to to find, you know, what the topic or the theme of that verse is, and, uh, you know, even some more information, supporting information within that single verse. The 
The, the verse that we use a lot of times as a pattern verse to address this subject of doing this is the verse that is found in John's Gospel. Was it? Uh, uh, I'm sorry, it was Mark's Gospel, I guess, Mark 8, where uh, the text is where it says that what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world but lose his own soul? And so the question is asked, you know, what is that verse talking about? What's the theme of that verse, or what's the major topic of that verse? What category would you put that verse in? And the answer to that is it would go in the category or the theme of the value of a man's soul. That's what that verse is talking about. It's talking about the value of the souls of men. And so the, the, uh, the idea then, the second question that would be asked is, what is it saying about the value of a man's soul? Well, it's saying in the same text that the, a man's soul is more valuable than all the world can offer. That if you had all the world, what good would it profit you to have all that, but, but then lose your soul? You'd lose the most uh, valuable thing. Uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to purchase it with, with just mere material goods, even if you owned everything that was in the world and so forth. So uh, now the preaching would flow out of that then uh, with, with points like this. First of all, that man has a soul, that he's not just a body in this world, like so many people think, like the Sadducees thought. It was all just, you know, just here being just whatever is physically experienced and physically known here in these types. No, man is both body, soul, and spirit. He's a tripart being. And so there's more to man than just the body. Man has a soul. Secondly, I would say that the, the point would be that the soul can be lost that when it talks about losing the soul in this passage, it tells us that there is some sense in which a, a person's soul can be lost, meaning not, not that they go into annihilation and they no longer have a soul, but lost, speaking of the fact that they would be separated. The soul would be not only separated from the body, like happens in the first death, but the soul and the body could then be separated from God for all of eternity. And so it could be lost in that sense. It could be separated from its vital connection to God himself and then suffer in the pains of hell for all of eternity. So the soul can be lost. Every man has a soul. The soul can be lost. The third point would be something along the line of it is relatively easy to lose your soul that to lose your soul, all you have to do is do nothing. Just remain in your current state of affairs. Just remain in your, you know, whatever you're doing in your natural uh, affections and your natural inclinations is what you were born with. We are born with the stain of original sin upon our souls. We are born in a state of alienation from God Almighty already because of our parents, our first parents' sins that is upon us. So we have not only the stain of original sin, but we have a sin nature that goes along with it. Our disposition or our bias or our bent in, in our natural state is away from God, never towards God. We, we can't do anything that is meritorious in the eyes of God that would commend us before God in that state. Everything that we do is tainted by sin, and we are corrupt our entire nature is corrupt and against God. Everything that flows from that nature is then polluted and corrupt and unable to please God in any way, shape, or form. And so we are under the condemnation of God. We are cut off from him, corrupt and cut off from God and under the condemnation of God in that state. And so in order to be reconciled with God, we must have a work done on our behalf that the work that needs to be done is a work that is a soul-level work that is done by the Savior. The Savior comes, and through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit of God, we are born again. We are given a new nature, a new disposition. We are made new now in a right relationship with God through or via the, the person and work of our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's what the idea would be on just a, a single verse and so forth and how that would be worked out then in a sermon. 
Now here, our task here in finding the unifying theme in this passage is much more difficult because we have 22 verses. And that's just the part I selected there, right? In order to take in, the more information you have to take into consideration, the more difficult it is in order to find the unifying theme. Now, the, the, another good example of this is in the, uh, the Confession of Faith or the Shorter Catechism that is associated with it. The Shorter Catechism takes the entire books of the Bible, all 66 books of the Bible, and from the 66 books of the Bible, the question then is asked, you know, what rule has God given to direct us how we should make glorify and enjoy him is in question two. And it says the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. And then it asks this question in question three, what do the scriptures principally teach? You think about this, it's talking about 66 books. And it's, it's asking the question, what is the unifying theme or themes that are found in the 66 books of the Bible. Now, can you imagine somebody coming up and asking you the question? You know, I know that you believe in the Bible, they say, by way of introduction. I see you carrying the Bible and you read the Bible and I hear you quoting the Bible and so forth. What, what does the Bible actually teach? And how would you answer that question? You're going to take into consideration, well, the Bible... It, it teaches about how man was created. It, it, you know, of course, it teaches about then that man fell into, into sin and so forth, and then how that sin was dealt with by God. You know, it would be kind of a long answer, right? A long answer as to what does the Bible principally teach, or what do the Scriptures principally teach? Catechism puts it this way, very succinctly, very accurately, I would say. It says the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Excellent answer, right? Now, now when, it, when it gets it right, when you get it right about, you know, what the thematic, uh, what the unifying theme is when you go through this process, sometimes it sounds, and this is, I think, when you know that you've done it well, is it sounds so simple that you say to yourself, well, why can I see that right in the very beginning, <laughs> right? It, it doesn't sound like a very complicated thing or anything like that. It is, it's so simple that, that it just cuts to the core of what the issue is. And in doing that and cutting to the core of it, it, it sounds so simple that you just say to yourself, man, that was so simple. I should have thought about that a long time ago. Christ did this all the time in the scriptures. He had this tremendous, what I refer to as a tremendous economy of words, right? He could say in just a few words what the, what the gist of the entire argument was or the entire point that he was making, right? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Wow. You know, talk about setting priorities, right? Well, there's the priority right there. Yeah, these other things are important, but don't put those things, the top priority in your life. The Lord knows the things that you need in this life and so forth. What should we be doing? Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. How about the golden rule that he gives for the life? You know, what should you be doing in, in life in general? How should you be thinking and treating other people and so forth? And then he goes in the golden rule to talk about do unto others as you would have them do unto you. <laughs> Extremely simple, right? And what he says here is just remarkable how he does this repeatedly, in the Word of God, he gets to the core of the issue. He deals with the, the center, the central theme, the central thought in the passage. And this is why I think, and this is why I spent so much time on it here this morning and even a few minutes on it in the sermon this past Lord's Day. This is why I think this is so important. I think this is good for us to, to force us to think about the unifying themes of an entire passage 
And, you know, what does it deal with? And then this will help you once you identify what the main subject is. By the way, what I find out most of the time as I do this is it's not what I thought it was in the very beginning. And oftentimes, as I look deeper into the passage, sometimes look at the syntaxes of the passage of the of the sentences that are put together and some of the meanings of the words and so forth, then it becomes apparent. You know, you know, the preacher is supposed to do the introduction into the sermon last, not first, when he puts the sermon together. A lot of young preachers make that mistake. They do the introduction first. Now, I do the introduction last because I don't know yet what I'm introducing. So how can I give you an introduction until I even know what it is that I'm introducing? And you won't find out what you're introducing until you do the exegetical work in the passage, the exegetical work being looking at the phrases that are mentioned, how often the repetitive phrases in, in a particular passage, what certain words actually mean, looking at the you know, the etymology of the word sometimes, or as I mentioned, the syntax of the word and so forth. You're comparing scripture with scripture of what was said. Sometimes there's this rule of the first use of a term in in the scripture and the last use of a term in the scripture. Sometimes by looking at those two things, it gives you a, a better sense of what that term is all about and what the depth of that term is. There's a lot of exegetical work that needs to be done. I've likened it before to a chef. You know, when a chef prepares a meal for people, he doesn't just go to the refrigerator and then, he, you know, he's got a plate and he takes out an onion and a tomato and some pasta maybe that's been pre-cooked or whatever. It's in a bowl in the, in the, uh, in the fridge and put that on there and, you know, everything in its raw form, and then he takes and he slaps the plate down in front of you and says, here, here's your meal. You know, that, you know, I, I think some, some people do this sometimes in the preaching. They just give you it in the exegetical form, which is like just giving you the grocery list or the, the ingredients in the raw form. But we got to go to the next level we got to take those exegetical points, the data that's that's given to us in the passage, right? All of that, and that needs to be then be boiled down into what is the unifying themes, and then from the unifying themes, out of that theme will then fall the points that will need to be expounded and preached and and uh, proven and so forth as we go through the the preaching. Now, again, I say all this. Not that you care, maybe, what is actually taking place and inside baseball of what preachers are supposed to be doing behind the scenes. It's not, not so that you see that so much, but I think it's good for you to do it yourself. That as you're going through, through passages, you, you don't get any points for just how many verses you read. You know, I have one person I talk to periodically, and they, they always seem to mention to me, Oh, I read my Bible all the time, and I'm reading, I'm you know, reading various passages of Scripture repeatedly, constantly reading, reading Scripture and so forth. That's good, but you know what? What's even better, I think, is to read a smaller amount of the passage of Scripture, if it will help you then to meditate on what is being preached in that passage or what you're learning in that passage, and so that you can actually understand what the passage is saying. And then you'll be able to then better apply the passage to, uh, of what it is saying to your life, right? This is Peter, uh, the Lord said, you know, not only blessed are they that hear, but blessed are they that do what the Lord says to do. You won't be able to do it if you don't understand it and be able to apply it to the different areas of your life. And in doing that, one of the tools to do that is what we're doing here in this passage. Now, I've taken a long time to uh, talk about just that part of it, but I, I really do feel it's that important. And I hope as we look at this that you'll see how it's done in this particular passage. I would say this. I think that the unifying theme of the entire passage that we're looking at here deals with the subject of primarily the authority and ability 
authority and ability. And specifically, it's talking about the authority and the ability of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are a number of terms, three different terms, that appear throughout this passage as we think about this, as the proving, you know, is that really true? Is this what the passage is talking about? Well, those three terms are the word name, and then the word power, and then the word authority. And some of those are mentioned, name is uh, mentioned overtly in the passage. And um, I think that uh, the other two primarily are found within the definitions of some of the other words. One is mentioned overtly in the passage as well. Power is, and authority is built in to the concept of the definition of name that is used repeatedly in the passage. Now, I think that this this uh, unifying theme of authority and ability, that it bears out in the question that is asked by the council to the two apostles. Look at the question. It says here, and when they had set them in the midst, in verse 7, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? I think that is, that's a key. This is a, this is a clue to help us to be able to understand what the major theme is that's being talked about in this passage. Notice, they don't question that the miracle was done. You know, they're not saying, you know, was this really done in, you know, some sort of inquisition about, you know, was this man truly this way? No, no, they, they admit this was done. That's not the question. What they ask is, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now, the word power here, the word power is, is the word dunamis. In the English, it, uh, it's the, a word that is the basis for the English word dynamite, dynamite. And so it directly relates to uh, a person's ability to be able to do something. Do you have the dynamic power in and of yourself to be able to do what is done? How, how is this done, they're asking? By what power, by what dynamic ability was this miracle done? in this passage. And this is why Peter, immediately afterwards, he says, you know, or, or in the previous passage, too, in, uh, in chapter 3, when he is explaining to the crowd, he says, and Peter saw it, he answered and said, ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this, or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? And so he's saying that it's not by us, it's not, I don't have the ability in and of ourselves here, but notice this is what the council is interested, by, by what ability, by what dynamic ability did you do this? Or they ask afterwards, they say, by, by what name, by what name did you do this? Well, name, the word name here in this passage, while it includes the concept of ability, a person's ability, it's more descriptive of someone's authority. Seven or eight times the, the word name is mentioned, specifically mentioned in this passage, just constantly talking about the name in this passage. And so there are a number of other verses that imply the things related or refer to the things related to the name as well. Uh, friend, when you just look up the meaning of the word name, it's uh, it has this idea. The name is used for everything. It says here, according to uh, the Blue Letter Bible and their biblical usage of the word name, appears 229 times in, in the scriptures. And it says here, uh, the name is used for everything which the name covers, everything of of the thought or the feelings of which are aroused in the mind by the mentioning, hearing, remembering of the name, i.e. one's rank, one's authority, one's interests and pleasures and command and excellencies and deed. So everything that is, is reckoned up in your mind when you think of that name, that's the idea in this passage when it speaks about this. And Vines goes into a even more descriptive uh, aspect of it 
you know, for all that the name implies, Vine says, the idea of authority, character, rank, majesty, power, excellence, uh, of everything that the name covers is the idea. This is the way it's used in Scripture. For instance, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, it says this, it, it represents the concept of title and dignity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name. So it's not just that he's given him the name Jesus or Lord or Christ or so forth. It's just the, you know, the syntax of the word L-O-R-D or J-E-S-U-S. You know, it's not just that. It's everything that's built into that, all the, the title of dignity and power that comes along with it in, in that title. Ephesians 1 uses it the same way. He says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. Notice that he doesn't refer to the name itself when he says that it's above that. He says, far above a Peter or a John or an Alexander or, you know, a Caiaphas or whatever. He said, talks about their rank or their place or their position. This is what it's talking about in this passage. The, the authority of Christ is the, is the context of the passage. I've run out of time for today, but tomorrow, Lord willing, on the broadcast, I'll follow this theme thir- uh, further. Remember this. The Lord Jesus Christ said, He said you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We'll see you next time right here on Knowing the Truth. You're listening to Knowing the Truth. To keep this ministry strong and coming your way, you can make a financial gift at knowingthetruth.org by clicking on the Donate button. You've been listening to Knowing the Truth with Pastor Kevin Bowling. Knowing the Truth is the outreach ministry of the Mountain Bridge Bible Fellowship in Traveler's Rest. For more information about the church and radio ministry, visit us on the web at knowingthetruth.org.